out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are Jim. This is uh, The C86 Show. I'm David Esau. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop from the golden decade. We also love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the singer-songwriter M. Grinner, who all the way from Canada, who's had indie hits titled Summer Long and also Acid and worked with a phenomenal amount of other artists, including David Bowie. And she was in the Bowie band when he played in Glastonbury Festival 2000. And also she collaborated with the astronaut Chris Hadfield on the uh, cover of David Bowie's Space Oddity, which was uh, recorded on board the International Space Station. This is the interview... As you, uh, as you can gather, we had a bit of chat to begin with because we'd never met each other before. And then I asked about that, uh, yes, the musical journey and how it all began. And this was Em's response. It's over to you. Well, that's a really good question. I think that mostly um, it was a bit of a survival tactic, to be honest, starting to write songs. Um, I remember just growing up in the wilderness <laughs> We lived in the country and there wasn't much to do. And, uh, you know, like a lot of families, we had our struggles. And I discovered pop music on the radio around 1983, which was a great time to discover it, I I think. Yes. (laughs) And um, I just wanted to write like everyone I heard on the radio. And uh, after that, I just decided I'm going to be the one who sings these songs. And that led to moving to Toronto and um, getting a record deal. So, uh, yeah, that's sort of how it all began. Yeah, because in the 80s, because without giving too much away, but I was born in the mid-60s, so I'm now in my mid-50s. So during the 80s, which was kind of the decade that I particularly loved for music, there was kind of different ones. There was like the mainstream charts, I suppose, in the UK and USA and probably, you know, North America, um, America as well, which was the, you know, that, that kind of, I suppose it was a lot of big production stuff and there was Spandau Barry and Duran Duran and Sade and all those kind of artists. And then you had the, an alternative kind of scene as well, especially in the UK and Australia and in the USA, which was kind of the, like bands like The Cure and The Smiths and The Cult. And then, and then you also had all that hair metal stuff that was happening in LA, which was quite... <laughs> comical really but um so which one did you sort of I mean there's probably more than that but that's kind of a simplistic look what was the sort of the the soundtrack of your sort of 80s it was a good chunk of hair metal I'm gonna uh, be forthcoming about that um what I think I liked about that stuff was the sort of excessive melody aspect of it you know um and I listened to a lot of Top 40 along with that. And it wasn't until I was 21, actually, when I met a manager from originally from Limerick, Ireland. His name was Michael Murphy. And he started making me uh, compilations of all the alternative stuff I had missed. Um, just due to what I – it wasn't on the radio where I was growing up. So I wasn't exposed to it. So suddenly I knew about – Everyone from, you know, Pixies to the Waterboys and Sugar Cubes and just a lot of stuff that I had missed. So that really informed my songwriting at that point. Yes. And did you, and obviously 
people started to see a spark of like, oh, this is this is somebody with with a bit of a, with with yeah, talent and and sort of potential without without sounding like a you know terrible word potential, you know, like somebody, you know, being being seen to be someone like yes, you know, kind of somebody who stands out a little bit more than than everyone else. Well, I mean, I guess so. I I often say that you know if you create opportunities, luck kind of finds you. And I think I certainly created the opportunities. I I always thought I would get a record deal and then I just got one. And um, a lot of people would kind of hang that on the hook of, you know, in 1998, so many women were being signed or whatever. But I always had that vision that I would just have that record deal. Um, and I do think, you know, my songwriting just was always fueled by, I don't know, a desire to, uh, there's some things I just can't say in real life that I could only say with music. And that has carried me through most of my career. That's kind of been the reason why I do anything. So record deal or no record deal. I've been independent now for like over 20 years, which I really do enjoy. Um, it's just been a great adventure, you know? So, I suppose, yeah, there were people that saw things in me in the early days. Um, and now I try to kind of give that back now to younger artists and, and try to help them. Um, because it, it is very confusing when you start out. You know, you don't know what your motivations are, what you're willing to do, and how far you can go and what you really want, you know. So it can be a really confusing time. But I've always really enjoyed every moment, so... Yes, because because with with a lot of the bands that I've I've interviewed and, and I have to confess they're mostly a lot from the eighties. They normally have this kind of a five year narrative, which is quite bizarre. But I mean, I guess the whether I was trying to work out about solo artists that I've interviewed, but mostly the band, you know, they get together, they have about twelve, eighteen months, kind of making a bit of a noise, and then you know getting picked up on the radio and in in the UK we had a particular DJ called John Peel who loved picking up new stuff and he was the kind of go-to person and then you'd get a John Peel session then the first album would happen things going quite well here doing more gigs and sort of touring a little bit more around uh, the UK and possibly Europe and then there was the tricky second album and and if any band ever toured America everyone would go then we toured America we came home we split up because I think America just finishes most people off and that is kind of really quite a oh my god I didn't really realize that quite so obviously until I started doing all these interviews and it was like oh yes the five-year narrative and the second album or third and and tour in America were were kind of um, yes moments that that seemed to put a nail in the coffin so when you were so with your solo career because it kind of it kind of really sort of you were the kind of the 90s was was kind of your first kind of explosion really and and you were sort of really prolific in that period I mean was there was a lot of artists around that time because in the 80s we had I suppose yeah there'd been there'd been this kind of wave of I suppose well you, did you relate to the a lot of the singer songwriters that period like um I was thinking of Michelle Shocked and then Tracy Chapman, Susan Vega, and then you got in the 90s, Alanis Morissette. Were they kind of people that you were kind of, you know, inspired by and Tori Amos, people like that? Uh, definitely Tori. Um, there was an element of her that I just felt, um, I don't know, I still think you listen to her and you feel like you can kind of do anything. Um, but I've always been more in, inspired by bands, really, Um and people like Peter Gabriel um, and uh, just, I don't know, a lot of 
just whatever was on the charts, I guess it wasn't really about the singer songwriter, but because I was signed at that time and my record came out at that time, I definitely got, you know, sort of reviewed alongside all of those lovely ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it must have been a like, oh, do I have to be pigeonholed all the time? It's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think, you know, what I try to tell other female artists at this point is like, you know, you know inside what you want to do. Um, you're going to get categorized or whatever, but just kind of continue with whatever creative path you want to be on, right? Yes. It, it is funny because a lot of the bands I grew up listening to, like Duran Duran and uh, I don't know who else. I, I did love the whole Britpop phase, I have to be honest. Um, I just love that kind of orchestral dream pop thing. Um but all a lot of those bands, you know, were um, influenced by Bowie. So it was funny to have my career go in that direction um, where I didn't really know any of Bowie's stuff before, like, you know, yes. 1983 or whatever. So, yes. So with with that kind of because your your 90s, when you look back at your 90s, the 90s period, does it feel quite like, wow, how did you? do so much so quickly and and how did you survive it because because you brought out kind of four albums if not you know and also you probably recorded the, the dead relatives um probably in the same decade so were you just like was it 24 7 you were just on this kind of phase yeah well my major label record came out in 98 and then I was dropped later that year in a big merger that happened and my first instinct was, you know, not to mourn that situation, but just go and make another record as quickly as possible. So that's what I did. I made a record on my own. And then I just got in this habit, I guess, or maybe I just wanted to try to put a record out every year because I could. Um, maybe it was some weird try, like attempt to prove that now that I'm on my own label, I can do whatever I want kind of yes. thing. Um yeah. And I guess that's what made me happy at that time is just being productive. And I love the process. I love recording. I love writing. I love like, you know, locking the door and not talking to anyone for a long time. That's why I say, you know, this uh, unusual time we find ourselves in as, you know, I feel like I've been training for it in a weird way. Just, um, you know, being a bit of an island. Yes. I would imagine anybody who's recording music or writing or painting um, if they're in that process at the moment, that you know things must slightly change a bit. Kind of, you know, I was thinking about that the other day. Thinking if you're a, an author and you're writing away, or you know, it could be the songwriter, you know, because there's been such a sort of it's a huge shift. You know, you'd almost feel like God, there is a before and after of this event. You know, that's going on going on in, on the planet. So, have you had that kind of? suddenly feeling of sort of going into your recording studio to to start sort of creating the next song or album thinking yeah things have slightly changed or, or do you sort of still yeah I mean I just wonder how that was for you well that's a really great question because before this all started I began a jazz album which I started as a gift for my dad who's 85 and um you know Jazz is not really something that I ever loved, um, but I kind of fell in love with it over the past three to four years just as a result of meeting various musicians. And I don't know, you get older and you sort of open your mind to other things. So 
I'd started to make this record with a great guy from Winnipeg named Larry Roy, who's a really talented Juno-nominated uh, guitar player, and he's a professor, professor of jazz, he actually is, <laughs> <laughs> at the University of uh, Manitoba. But um, And also with a friend of mine from L.A., Joe Corcoran. So I, like, zipped to Winnipeg, zipped to L.A., done all my tracking, came back, and then it was just a case of mixing the record. So then the pandemic hit. Um, and I think it's been two things for me. Like when you decide to make an album, sorry, that's right. Decide to make an album for someone else, you, um, sorry, I'm just going to turn my phone off. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand you. Um, so you kind of start, well, if that person is your dad, you start kind of going back down the rabbit hole of childhood. So that's opened up a lot for me. And then, you know, he's super high risk right now. So, you know, we're all trying to protect him and get him to stay in one spot. So luckily, like he's getting these jazz tracks uh, over email and um, it's really brightening his day, you know. So I think, you know, this becomes less about like, I'm making an album and come and fund it and look at me and more of, you know, how can I put this out there for people and give them like three minutes of escape if they hear a song, you know, um, that's, I think how this has changed for me. And then the other side of it is we're so hyper aware as a society, everyone is already writing all those articles about like, you know, how this is going to change us and everything. And, um, it's a lot. So I think, you know, I hope all my creator friends who are scrambling and doing live streams and doing all this crazy stuff, just kind of like, you know, I hope we all remember that art has always saved us, you know, um, and music has always healed us. So hopefully, you know, it can serve that purpose yes. again. Because right? it's, cause it's interesting because, because I, I sort of listened to some of the tracks you sent and, um, it's funny, I, did, I sort of was thinking of Chet Baker, actually, my funny, funny Valentine when I listened to, I think it was Imagination, it was one of them, that I think it was the collaboration you did with David Rhodes, which must have oh, yeah. been an amazing, you know, uh, time to be able to work with a, a musician like David, especially because he'd been working with Dave, uh, Peter Gabriel as well. Yeah, I it was just over the moon. I mean, that was a case of, um, you know, a guitar player who played on my record was ill and uh, couldn't finish my record. And um, I didn't even tell David that. I just said, I really like you're he's like my top favorite guy. Right. <laughs> so I just emailed him. Um, a friend of mine, David Bottrell had worked with him and he was uh, like the, the connection to David Rhodes. And um, I just said, do you think David Rhodes would do this? Cause He's like my favorite. He like paints with guitar tones and textures. And um, and then uh, David just said yes, you know, like not wanting anything or asking for anything. And I just like that generosity is just it's amazing. It makes you want to spread that to other people. So, yes, pay it forward, as they say. So going back slightly to 2000. And and you had another moment, which was quite extraordinary. How did the, the kind of work in you know, with with um, David Bowie and, and, and doing Glastonbury and a few other 
dates, which was, you know, have become sort of such iconic moments. How did that that phone call or email come come about? How did I get asked to be in his band? Yes. Yeah, well, um, the manager I, just, I mentioned earlier, Michael Murphy, he uh, started working with a, an artist named Holly Palmer. So Holly is a American uh, singer, songwriter, and she's an amazing lady. Um, she just recommended me to join the band. And this was after I left Mercury Records and I was, you know, making an album in a cottage in Ontario. <laughs> and um, I just felt like I should say yes, even though I didn't really know Bowie's work that well. Um, so I said yes. And then a week later, we were doing like Saturday Night Live and we flew over and we did like T- TFI Friday and all those shows. And um, it was uh, pretty amazing, I have to say. Yes. And what was your, <laughs> what's your memory? Because the Glastonbury Festival, because I was there, you know, it was the summer solstice, the, 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 it was the Sunday evening, the, the, the sun was going down, incredible light, and there was the Glastonbury tour in the background and, and that pyramid stage. So how did that feel when you were sort of backstage and, and sort of, yes, what was, the, you know, what was going through your mind at that point? Well, um, I remember two things, really. Um, I really wanted to go to Glastonbury as an audience member because of my love for Britpop and your country. Um, and uh, I just couldn't believe that I was there. But, you know, I didn't really get to see any of the bands I had to perform. <laughs> um, but we were super energized because we knew how big it was. Um, but we were also nervous because Bowie had lost his voice at some previous shows we did in New York. So everyone was kind of like just fingers crossed, hoping he was going to be okay for the show. And, um, you can kind of see it in the video, um, in the concert, if you watch it back, like we are sort of, you know, we loosened up as things went on. Um, and we started to smile more and David, you know, um, sort of beamed a little more as things went on. And, um, yeah, I just, an amazing moment. And I, I'm not sure I would have remembered it all if it wasn't released again, um, which they did a couple of years ago. So that was pretty life changing too. Yes. I, I sort of, yeah, I saw his, some of it over Christmas and the DVDs come out, which is, yeah, I suppose it's just kind of those, it must've felt quite surreal really suddenly appearing like that thinking, hmm, interesting experience <laughs> sort of. Yeah, yes. I, I remember like, you know, the crowd, like, I do remember just like, see, I've never seen that many people in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, to see that many people just together, united, like singing all his songs and like the steam coming out of the front rows and people getting carried away <laughs> and stuff by paramedics. Um, and I just, I, I don't know, you just, you lose yourself in it, I think. And, um, I'm pretty grateful to have had that experience. Yes. And having, you know, as, as the years and decades went, you know, have, have sort of rolled on, thankfully. I mean, and you start working with different people and looking at their back catalogue and different bits. Has that kind of also fed into your work thinking? Because I know with that particular concert, you know, he starts with the Nina Simone song, Wild is the Wind, which is kind of really quite amazing sort of blues jazz song. And then he has his other bits and pieces, even a bit of drum and bass. I just wondered if you being there thinking, oh, this is interesting. Um, yeah, I might have a go at this when I get back. And well, this is, you know, and then sort of exploring like the work of Peter Gabriel and the work of 
Bowie and very, probably loads of other people. I just wondered how, you know, as an artist, where you start feeling like you you develop your own gravitas yourself. I wondered if that that's that that kind of happens over the years that you suddenly feel like you're part of it more than just feeling like you're a bit of an intruder. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I think more so, you know, I was really young when I sang with Bowie, so um, I I don't think, like, until much later did I really, did it sink in uh, how he kept his curiosity alive, you know? Like, he just followed every little kind of, um, passionate whim that he had, you know, um, that made sense for him to follow for him, right. Not for what people wanted him to do. So I think if anything, that has been what I took away from that situation. And then I don't know what it is, but like, I, you know, I kind of got into Joni Mitchell as a result of doing a play, here in uh, London, the the other London. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I maybe there's this thing about you know you get older and the sort of like you need more out of music than just like sometimes you do like than just like you know kind of five lines and a EDM beat right like yeah. you just need some layers to it. Um, so if anything, you know, I suppose that has inspired me. I think I'm thinking mostly of the jazz record, you know. Yes. Um, well, it's interesting because cause obviously um, Joni Mitchell, definitely somebody who kind of I loved, and she definitely went through that, Charlie Mingus, and then she always had some amazing musicians she played with and bass players as well, which I won't remember their name, but I do sort of remember she would go from a folk tradition to almost a pop to more of a jazz exploration. So, again, sort of I suppose people are playing with different forms and different textures and different sort of sonic sounds as well. Yeah, I think it's, you know, if you're if you're in music, like when I got dropped from my label, I didn't really think of it like a big defeat because I was just so curious about things, you know, and, you know, I would never put myself on the same plane as Bowie, but what I would say is that we're both curious, you know? Um, and I, I find that about a lot of the artists that I've loved, you know, Joni, Peter Gabriel, Prince, um, you know, but curious and artistic, but still like fun. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, absolutely. I always, you know, I, you know, always, always think of other people like, I suppose, Neil Young, who always just, I always remember him saying when I've heard interviews, just to follow the moves. I suppose he just followed whatever you feel like you really want to do. And so there were times when Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young were about to do something and he would just go, no, I'm not not doing this anymore and the, the, the other three guys were like oh my god I really wish you wouldn't do that Neil but it was like no I'm just I know where we're going I don't want to go there now so I'm going to go on follow this bit which might be a commercial disaster but you know artistically it was what he needed to do you know and Bowie made some I mean I have to say I was obsessed with Bowie so I did follow his career and some of the albums were like interesting oh there's another one coming along this is great and his last couple of albums his last album you know was really jazz because he'd worked with a jazz band from new york so again you know it's kind of interesting that a lot of people come back to this form of music you know this genre of music yeah yeah it's really funny i remember during my during the time touring with him my older brother is a big like 
tin machine fan. <laughs> and so I got David to sign a tin machine CD for my brother. And uh, my brother's name is Tony and David signed it. Dear Tony, great taste. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I always remember him laughing, saying he'd sold about eight copies of the album and one to his grandmother. But, you know, so then in the, the mid the mid-decade... Um, I suppose we call it the naughty. So you did a cover, an album of covers, Songs of Love and Death. <clears throat> so wait, how did you come to choose the songs you, you came, came to select for that compilation or collection? I really uh, dove into exploring a lot of Irish rock, pop, punk, um, you know, I guess what would be considered like classic rock um, in Ireland. Um, and Ireland has this thing about it where, you know, there have been bands that have been quite popular in Ireland, but not, they've not really made it outside of the country. And that's a real Canadian thing too, right? We have our treasures here. Yes. Um, so I was really intrigued by that. So I really just picked songs like, you know, I went to the, the record store and, uh, really dove in and talked to a bunch of different people and, it's like a research project really. Um, and I just picked the songs that I liked the most. Um, there were some journalists that kind of scoffed at the fact that I'd put like the cores and undertones on the same record, <laughs> but I don't know. It was just to me, it's all music really. So. Yes. Well, I'm, yes, I must admit, you know, we, there were a couple of singles the calls did, which were just, I thought, you know, just unbelievably beautiful or, or not just beautiful. Actually, they were quite, Yes, it's instantly catchy, which I, um, yes, where are they now? But yes, I just was kind of curious. And also you had Thin Lizzy, who we all love intensely. And uh, yes, that was quite good. So with setting up your record, just lastly, I mean, you, you know, starting a record label is quite a major thing, isn't it? So did that, you know, and speaking to a few people who did, you know, bands as well as uh, just people who set up a record label, how did you sort of manage to navigate that, that kind of experience? Well, having a label seemed well, it was quite natural to me. Um, when I say I grew up in the woods, my parents ran a newspaper out of our basement. So they kind of showed me how to be like my own boss and um, how to find the fun in, you know, just being in charge, really. Um, so, you know, the label really was just for me to put my records out. Um, but then later... I released a few records by other people and that's something that I would love to do again. Um, and, uh, just kind of giving back, I guess. And there are a lot of artists who kind of didn't, didn't have the time of day from people and, you know, now they're doing quite well and I wouldn't totally take responsibility for that, but you know, we all need little stepping stones. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I loved, I, I loved it. I, it suits me better than, I was always really skeptical, I think, of that, um, you know, here's 50 people working on your record and five o'clock hits and then they're not thinking about you at all kind of thing. Um, not that I need someone to be thinking about me 24 hours a day, but when you have your own label, you really, then you hire people who are authentically interested in what you're doing. So that's been a bit of a business model for me is like, like, I'm going to work with people that I love. So, yes. Which is which is absolutely fantastic. Yes, I mean, I do know quite a few. There's uh, what's it, Thea Gilmore, who's sort of, she set up her own label and recorded, 
and then got signed to a major, had a bad experience, and then went back to being on her own label and, and just thought, no, this is, this is where I want to be. I'd rather sell less but have more ownership and more direction than, than being told what to do and, and suddenly entering into all these relationships with kind of labels and managers or people and that you just don't want to do and then not even owning your work, which I think with, with, with a lot of artists I spoke to, that's the thing that kind of hurts most is not being able to say, that's still my music. It's like, you know, someone else has got the publishing. Yeah, you know, and you hear lots of horror stories these days. Uh, I've always been wary of that, you know, of how, you like obviously the the upside of signing to a label and kind of becoming more of a product and a brand is that visibility, right? You can become um, more recognized, but at the same time you trade a lot away. And it seems to me just a lot of, you know, not the kind of headaches I'd like to be kind of managing. Um, so I think, I don't know, it's a great time to be independent. And now a lot of people are making music and who knows how many people are going to make albums in the pandemic. It's just going to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot from the amount of people who are sort of appearing sort of like every night on Facebook or some sort of, or Instagram sort of playing guitar. It's quite extraordinary because there's people I, who I think I've, I haven't seen or heard of for decades and they're suddenly appearing suddenly. No, we're here. We're really here. It's quite, yeah. it's quite sweet. Really. So just, yeah, just one other brief one. You know, you, you did a collaboration with the astronaut, Chris Hadfield on a cover of, I don't know, David Bowie's kind of space odyssey. That that must have also been kind of a great, well, I, I put kind of words in your mouth, but was that a, an interesting and a great experience? It was a great experience, yeah. And I think the beauty of that, you know, Chris just got up in a space and called me and uh, I had just like had a baby. So I was pretty psyched to get a call from space. And um, he just said, I want to do this song. And I tried to talk him out of it. Um, <laughs> there was another song, um, by Bowie I wanted him to do, but he was really set on space oddity. And so I came up with the piano part and it was really inspired by, um, this acoustic version of here comes the flood by Peter Gabriel. Oh, yes. And I just thought, oh, it's so ethereal. I love that so much. Um, so that's how I started it and then shot it back into space and Chris sang on it and then. I, um, my friend Joe Corcoran helped produce it and, and then Chris shot the video for it. So it was really one of these things where no one knew why we were really doing it. Um, but it was a really like, you know, a beautiful video where Chris really showed us space and he's just a nice guy, you know, so he's not trying to, you know, be cool necessarily. He's just, he loves to sing and I think that really came across. And I know that when it was all over, like David wrote me an email and he said, um, this is all so beautiful. Well done. And um, so, it was, you know, I think to have that happen at the end of his life, um, when he when David passed away, I know that uh, Chris and I had a little moment where we were just, I think, happy that that had happened, that uh, we made that song and and Chris brought so much, uh, you know, magic to it. Yes, absolutely. You must have felt slightly giddy thinking your music was there in space, being the sort of soundtrack to this the most extraordinary sight in the yeah. galaxy. Yeah, and what a song, though, too. You know, like, I always wished that we had done that song live, and we never did. So it yes. was great to uh, 
to have that uh, so what version. Was, what was the song you wanted instead? Oh, um, something about a Gemini spaceship. Oh, um, yes, yes. <laughs> do you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, I think it's either on Heathen or Reality, isn't it? Yeah, it was a more recent one. But yeah. um, no, I uh, the astronaut had the say there. So, Well, it's funny because my first ever single was Space Oddity. It was when I was, because, you know, I grew up watching Top of the Pops in, the I suppose, the early yeah. 70s. And there was all the glam stuff. And then suddenly David David Bowie appeared and space oddity and it was like I was about 10 and I was like oh my god and and that was on the Thursday evening and bought the single on the next Saturday and and the b-side was amazing it had changes and velvet goldmine and I was like oh yeah so he was always my first love I have to confess so which was quite lucky because there were there was others I could have been you know would have been in horrendous so um yeah so so working with him must have been incredible and getting the odd email and and message during his kind of hibernation period must have been quite incredible as well yeah, we, you know, we geeked out over the same kind of music, you know, um, a lot of those 90s uh, heroes like Mercury Rev and there's a band called Granddaddy we actually went to see together in New York. Um, and then just before he died, there was a song called um, Times Square by Destroyer, who's a Canadian guy. And it's very Bowie-esque. And um, we were geeking out about that. And he's like, oh, I love that song. And um yeah, and then that, that actually was one of our last kind of exchanges, you know. But it's like how great to be someone so accomplished, um, but still like love new music, you know. Maybe yeah. it was just it sounded like him, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I don't know. It must have just been incredible, and you must feel blessed. So, just last, what would you say to a, an, you know, an eighteen-year-old self that was starting out that you thought? God, if someone, or, you know, just that, you know, a, a couple of bullet point, you know, just like things that you've, you've kind of over the years have developed a certain experience and wisdom that you think, oh, yeah, that would have been really useful to have, know, or been at least told it if you, you know, you could have even, even ignored it. But just, just something that you thought, yes, that would have been really good. Well, that's a really tough question. Um I think because every 18-year-old is different. Um, but, I mean, if it were myself, I guess I would, you know, I was very, very easily influenced by people, even though I felt like I was very independent and fierce, kind of. Mm. It was kind of a bad combo, actually, to uh, to be easily influenced but not really aware of it. So I think... You know, it's scary to do what you want to do, but you have to do what you want to do or else you just end up kind of regretting things later, you know. So um, even though I do feel like I've kind of done what I wanted to do, it's been a lot of trial and error, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, follow what it is that you love. And for me, you know, I know you focus a lot on 80s music on your show, and I love that, like – um, it was kind of a crazy time. So I think a lot of that music was like kind of a remedy for people, you know, it was just so excessive and so melodic. Um, and I hope that people kind of find something similar in this trying time. Yes. <laughs> I know it's very tricky, isn't it? Yes. But I think you're right. You know, it's kind of just last, it's kind of interesting because I noticed that, um, 
with each kind of decade, there's a bit of a zeitgeist, I suppose, a scene that happens. And it was interesting that the artists from the sort of 60s, 70s, when they tried to make music in the 80s, for once they were sort of slightly following what was happening rather than leading. And and I do remember, you know, like, as I said with David Bowie, it was like, for once, he 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 kind of had lost it. I mean, Let's Dance was quite good. His next two albums, you know, it was like, it was kind of like similar to to the other stuff going on in the chart but you know it was it wasn't really vital and then I think he had to do Tim Machine to break that and then <laughs> then find then find what he yeah, what he really wanted to do which was bizarrely a bit of um, drum and bass which was <laughs> and then you know but you could see an artist has that kind of sometimes that moment of probably it's difficult to always be doing something that's really there you know and sometimes you think actually I, I've slightly taken my eye off the ball I suppose and and I'm slightly following the trend rather than doing what I really want to do, even if that might be commercial disaster. If you yeah. does that make sense? Totally, yeah. Um, and it's interesting that even the most established, influential, influential people can fall prey to that. You know, um, I like your idea, <laughs> like the the theory. I mean, Tin Machine may make it into like a verb. I'm Tin Machining my way through my career. <laughs> Indeed, the wonderful world that was Tim Machine. It was actually better, or they were better, than uh, we often give them credit for. I got the second album and played it continuously for winter back in probably the 90s. Anyway, that sadly is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening. A huge thank you to M. Greener for their time for that interview. And um, yes, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at c86 show and i've uh, been archiving all these uh, shows the playlists and also the interviews so you can find those on itunes spotify Podbean. just go and have a look anyway this has been david eastall c86 show stay safe 